Hello and welcome to the Analytics FC podcast. I'm Alex, Head of Content, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Machici. Dan has a reputation as a coaching innovator honed over years in the industry. He's worked most recently as assistant head coach at Crawley Town, and he's also been the head coach of England's under-16s, head academy coach and first team manager at MK Dons, and the head coach for Arsenal under-18s and the under-17 and under-23 PDP lead. Dan, we like to kick these off with some background. So, how did you get into football coaching? My interest in football came from when I was growing up in the 90s. We didn't have Sky Sports until the mid-90s. My parents are Italian, so I was getting video cassettes sent to me of the Italian football. And at the time, it was in its prime with the likes of Marco Van Basten and Roberto Baggio, Paolo Maldini, etc. So I got a real love for the game in my formative years. And in terms of a coaching perspective, my first coaching role was at Crystal Palace Academy under the leadership of Paul Holder, who's now at the FA. And that's where I really developed a love for coaching. So it's fair to say that your reputation in coaching is slightly extreme in your approach to youth development. Is that something that was honed during those early experiences or was it something you brought to it yourself? Uh, and did you seek out data and evidence for that approach? Or was it more of a gut instinct? This is how I want to do it. This is what's going to work. Where it came from was because I'd grown up watching a lot of football from other countries in particular from Italy and I grew up learning a different style of football when then it came to watching English football it was very different and it might not seem like that now because we've come on a long way but if I think back to when I was in Tottenham's academy and went to MK Dons we're talking about 2005, 6, 7 if you think about it in 2008 England didn't actually qualify for the Euros and the style of play was not anywhere near what it is today and that so-called golden generation often talk about how they were restricted in terms of how they played whether it was individually or in terms of playing system so I was sort of caught between the two I was experiencing a football when I was at home that was very different to one that was in the actual country I was living in and I was determined to show that I could help young players be far better than they thought they could be and maybe their families thought they could be or the industry said they would be so that sort of came from within really and I guess my personality is one that I've always had to prove people wrong when I was growing up both my parents didn't speak much English so I had to work harder than anybody else to get my GCSEs and then get into Loughborough University and then get through Loughborough so I've always had to um, work for whatever I got and coaching was going to be no different in terms of the use of data I remember presenting to a Premier League group on um, small pitches and the benefits of small pitches and showed a lot of video footage and I actually remember Tony Whelan from Man United and Chris Ramsey who's now at QPR were both in that room and they were the only two people who phoned me afterwards and said we get you I get where you're coming from and I guess it was because they're real football people and they could see what the players were doing on the pitch whereas a few of the other comments I got during the meeting was this is very anecdotal but up until then Man United were the only ones really that had got into it in terms of 4v4s and they've done a brilliant job. Their resources were far higher than an MK Dons where we didn't have the human resources to maybe quantify things like Man United could. So to answer your question, a lot of it was trial and error. A lot of it was liaising with people who are considered to be experts in the game and, and also speaking to the players and looking at football at the highest level. What were the spaces generally like that these players were having to play in and how could we try and replicate that as much as possible? So obviously it worked because there was a clear pattern of success. If we look at players like Sheiji Ojo, Deli Ali, 
uh, and also going on to work with something like 75% of the players involved in England's 2017 triumphs, which was the under-17 national team winning the World Cup, the 2017 Toulon tournament. Did you know at that point that the players weren't just going to be good and make it, but also that your way of coaching them made a significant difference? Did you feel like there had been a step change that you were part of, uh, and that's what heralded this new generation of more technical, more expressive players going on and doing well? I don't think you ever know for sure where they're going to end up because none of us have got a crystal ball. So I think it's very difficult to make those judgments and because we always get ones wrong. I've sat in meetings where you've tried to predict these things and I've been in meetings where people more experienced than me have presented on groups they've taken that might have won the Euros, for example and who the squad was and who they thought would go on and it hasn't always panned out like that but there's too many variables there's too many external factors all I generally look at is if all things remain equal so that means this individual keeps working hard doesn't get sidetracked doesn't lose focus doesn't get any severe injuries then I can't see why this individual won't carry on and generally the ones who haven't carried on, one of those things have happened. They've either had a bad injury, they've either lost their focus or stopped working hard. And that's affected either team selection or form. In terms of was it my way, I mean, I would say I've played a part. The biggest pat on the back needs to go to the players because the sacrifices they have to make is incredible. And I think the thanks I need to give is anybody that's led me well has allowed me to flourish, which then I try to impart on players if I know what gets the best out of myself in terms of being allowed to be creative, being allowed to be different and be myself. If I can then impart that on players, then you're halfway there because you're allowing them to be themselves and play to their strengths. That's really interesting. We're going to come back to the circumstances in which England found and developed these players. But just to come back to something you said there, creating the environment for these coaches to thrive as well as players, do you think that's a thing that clubs generally think of? Working first with coaches, asking them what they need, what are the systems that they need in place, infrastructure, support, or even just the latitude, like you say, to be able to express themselves. Are clubs putting coaches first in that regard? Because presumably if you get that right, then everything else follows? Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I mean, if I just give a bit more detail in terms of my experience. So I was very fortunate that, for example, at MK Dons, my academy manager in seven years never once talked to me about a result, good or bad. You know, we had a lot of good ones, but that was the culture he created that we weren't about results. Our result was getting players onto the first team pitch or into an international setup. We weren't even looking to sell. Selling just was a byproduct of everything else that went on. And I remember once we went to watch a couple of the boys play for. England I think it might have been the Nordics and he asked me where I wanted to go in my career and I said oh, I'd love to work for the FA one day work with one of the England teams but I said it will never happen and he said why not and, I, and this is my boss saying this and I said um, well you know I just can't see it and he said no 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 if you want to do it you go and do it you make it happen so he didn't put in a coach competency framework or a plan for me necessarily he did appraisals with me and things like that but it was on me to then go and make that happen so I started to build my network at the FA with Trevor Brookin and Gareth Southgate at the time and no doubt those kinds of things helped when it came to interview processes but there was nothing too formal shall we say whereas I see a lot of things put online about what heads of coaches are doing and what 
the Premier League are doing with courses and I'm not privy to those things so I can't really comment. I just know from my experiences I've always had the likes of a Chris Ramsey, a John McDermott, Per Mertesacker. You know I've had quite sort of strong leaders Dan Ashworth, Matt Crocker, Gareth, people who I knew what the vision was, I knew why I was there and then I just got sort of regular feedback but I also got to see a lot of best practice and then I think then a lot of it should come from within as well in terms of how much you're willing to dedicate to your development and you know a lot of it is on yourself. That's brilliant. I think it's very interesting, this blend of having the right support structure, role models who empower you, but also being very self-motivated. If we talk a little bit more about the setup you were working at at international level, England went from winning youth competitions with a heavy focus on scouting across various age groups towards establishing an insights team and being much more data-driven. Did that seem like a good decision to you at the time? Yes, definitely. I think we had a very strong performance department led by Dave Redding and then um, Richard Adam was leading the talent ID department along with the likes of Steve Brown. Very intelligent people, both subjectively and objectively. And I think what the insights department gave was that added evidence to guide our decision making. It wasn't as prevalent with the younger groups. There wasn't as much information available. So we... Again, going back to what we just spoke about, where you're allowed to be yourself. So when I went to the FA, there wasn't an under-15s age group. Dan Ashworth put me responsible for that. And again, he allowed me to run that programme how I thought best. So again, I tapped into different experts within the organisation and we came up with a different model for the talent ID. So we ran three camps. And the first one was for January to April borns, the second one for May to August, and then the third one was for September to December's. And what that done was that tried to just address the age bias that was taking place in the national teams and I guess in the professional clubs as well. So that got a wider net of players through the building just through that framework. And then as the players progressed through the pathway, data was used more. You mentioned Dan Ashworth, uh, Matt Crocker. Dan is now director of football at Newcastle, having been hugely successful at Brighton. Matt Crocker has actually just announced that he's leaving Southampton, but is there for a little while longer yet as head of academy. How important is it that there's this kind of interpenetration between the top level club game in England and the FA with talented individuals going back and forth between the two? Does that create a more holistic pathway for players that are doing well to move into the England setup? Or are they quite distinct jobs where the opportunity is there just because they're talented enough to do both? Yeah, I think there was definitely that culture of trying to create more cohesion between the organisation and clubs. And there wasn't as many barriers as maybe when I was coming through the coaching pathway to get in. I mean, Gareth opened those doors for me. But other than Gareth, really, and, and Trevor to an extent, I wouldn't get into rooms at all. Whereas Dan opened the doors to coaches watching uh, training, even them attending camps to observe. I remember when we were in Montague once, there was three or four coaches who were there to watch their players play and they ended up coming to all our meetings and watching training etc so the doors were very much open to them and I guess the benefit of that is you need those relationships to then get access to players get their insight in terms of players because we might not have the evidence that we need on certain players but they may do because they're theirs and then also I guess it's succession planning as well. You know that people are going to move on eventually and you're preparing yourself to continue that conveyor belt coming through. 
Did you get the impression then that this sort of broadening out of things, opening things up to new coaches and so on, was part of a deliberate plan that the FA had at the time? Or was it more of a reflection of the individuals that happened to be involved then and there? Yeah, I think it was the individuals that involved. They had come from clubs themselves, obviously, more recently and been very successful. So I guess they were looking at it from maybe how they felt on the outside, maybe when they went through their interview processes and they were asked, what would they do differently? What would they change? Maybe that was one of the things because the very first coaching conference that took place was called Playing Our Part, I think it was. And it was basically them communicating to everybody that we only loan the players, we have them very very short space of time you develop them they come through grassroots they come through re triple p etc so everybody plays their part in successful england teams we also had a dna leadership group and in that group we had coaches from different clubs and we also had people from different sports as well so that it was very much about broadening our horizons and us trying to learn from people from outside as well and not thinking that we knew it all Obviously, the England DNA document had a significant impact on things. We understand that during your time at the FA, they were using a relatively unknown third-party data collection company to tag matches and collect data on youth players as part of an attempt to homogenise England across the age groups. Is that something you knew about at the time? And did it impact on your coaching in any way? Like I said, I was working more so with the under 15s and 16s and it was used less with those age groups. It was more the strategy we used at 15s to get more players in the building, getting out and doing club visits and getting out to tournaments, etc. So it wasn't something really that I was involved with too much. And I guess the time I joined, the time I left, it was very different and you could see that the department was expanding and it was kind of in its infancy really. Do you think the England DNA thing has been positive overall? I mean, obviously, we got to the finals of the European Championships and we just got knocked out very recently in the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Sorry, that's probably still raw for many people. There does seem to be a significant change in terms of the relative success rate of England's performances at tournaments. And of course, that's in large part to Southgate's consistent leadership. But is it also the case that you can see positive outcomes of the England DNA document, considering some of the players were working with you during that time? Yeah, I think what the England DNA gave was a clear vision. The vision was winning England teams. And obviously that happened a lot at the uh, youth levels and coming under that was how we win, you know, how we play, how we coach, the type of players that we think fit the England DNA. And then also the culture, the who we are, creating connections to the badge, to who we are, who we represent. So what it done really, the England DNA, it gave a framework for us to then work from and gave us something to review against and work towards. Is that review process as important as it sounds? Because when you talked about coaching, you were talking about having a degree of flexibility, latitude, being able to express yourself, work with players in a way you want. I'm guessing unless there's an overarching framework within which that sits, things could become quite chaotic. People leave jobs, like you say, there's no contingency plan, no succession planning. So you might have a series of really good coaches, but unless there's an overall plan to hold them to account... That doesn't necessarily work. I guess the balance would be between allowing coaches to express themselves individually and working within a plan. So like you don't want to hamper, uh, you don't want to be hampered by the plan, but you do want it to be a guide and something that you can check against. Did the DNA document have enough latitude in it for that? 
there was never like there's the England DNA document uh, because I think what was rightly spoken about was as soon as you print something it's out of date the next day because it was constantly evolving I think it was actually phrased as an evolving DNA yeah like I said before all the people who have led me the best have always had a clear vision so we had a clear vision we had a clear framework and it was always evolving I think when you work at somewhere like the FA the biggest thing you've got is time you've got time to plan and to review your work so there was always camp debriefs where we could check and challenge each other with the right people in the room and it was a comfortable environment where constructive conflict was encouraged in the right way and that helped us to improve and that helped us to learn from each other and Matt Crocker for example as our head of coaching he would attend a camp for example so he had a 10-day camp he would be there to make notes throughout the camp and then he would meet with you post camp and he would give you feedback across those different layers on the DNA but what he was also doing was catching you doing things well and he would signpost you to other people so you might say right Dan I've seen Paul Simpson do a really good set piece meeting with the players where the players had loads of ownership so then it would be signposting you to Paul Simpson so then I could go to Paul Simpson and say can I see how you did it or can we talk through it and vice versa you know he might say to Paul Simpson oh, I like the way Dan did X so he was, I would say, 80% catching you doing things well. And then 20% would be, what did you think of this? Or do you think that meeting overran too long? Or, you know, obviously we had metrics on our playing style. So he could reinforce whether you were on track with that or not. And also with the coaching model, because it was a 70% ball rolling target for the coaching model as well. In terms of measuring stylistically how you were playing, so your, your England teams were noted for playing very, very good football, being expansive, entertaining, technical and possession-based. How did the FA square that reality with the fact that at the point in time that you were doing that, more senior sides were much more functional and pragmatic? Did you feel at that point that the senior sides were not part of the development process because it started with young players and now we're seeing the fruits of that? Or was it something where there was enough differentiation in the age groups anyway for it to just be fine that the senior side had to be more pragmatic? We actually had some high scoring games as well where I remember once on a tournament we drew 4-4 two games in a row. Once against Croatia and I think the other one was against Russia or USA, something like that. And all you'd get asked is why did we have such high scoring games was it we were missing centre-backs or they just want to understand the why and there wasn't oh you know you're too open or anything like that if anything it was celebrated in terms of how the style of play was actually not only trying to dominate the ball but he was actually taking it a bit further and learning about players as well so strategically creating a basketball game at times so we could actually see players defending 1v1 situations and also see them in attack 1v1 as well as they went through the pathway you know everything changed the amount of opposition analysis changes the amount on set pieces the players are different as well a lot of them are now playing in first team football you're now in elite rounds where maybe only one qualifies and you could be in a group with Spain and you've got to balance going to play in Spain and dominating the ball 
but maybe losing to sacrificing a little bit with the ball, not completely extreme, but a little bit with the ball to get through. So then you are exposing those players to the actual Euros itself because a lot of the research that was done for Dan when he got the job was successful senior teams have been successful at youth level as well. So the Spain team that won the World Cup, for example, would have won major tournaments at youth level and got to semi-finals and finals. Same with Italy, the team that won the 2006 World Cup. A lot of those players were the same. So it was getting that balance between the style and also these things don't happen straight away, but also to get to these latter stages of tournaments so that the players have got those real life experiences and the staff to draw upon when they get into the seniors. That's really interesting. The idea of allowing games to be more fluid and flexible to engineer situations. One could be quite cynical and suggest that tactics has a kind of like stultifying effect on the game, almost that you use tactics to avoid the necessity of generating 1v1s all of the time. So the individual skill can take you around the player because players, as they get older, they can't necessarily rely on that degree of skill. I assume you wouldn't agree with that, but that is something that people talk about when they discuss the increasing systemization of tactics. I think it depends on what teams we're talking about here. And if I look at first team football now, I see teams who, for example, will engineer things. They will play forward to create a counter-pressing situation high up the pitch. There'll be teams who, it's no different with setting a trap on a particular player. And you know on the regain, if you execute your first pass, you've got three lots of 1v1 situations. So, you know, I think what we're talking about without knowing what is going on inside a manager's head. I do see these things occur. I'll give you a more specific example. So I remember we were playing against Sweden once and they were defending in a very low block. They just weren't going to move. So in order to open the game up a little bit, we allowed them to have some possession and kept players up. So when they had the ball, we had players already in transition positions. So on the turnover, there was 1v1 situations. But also when we attacked, rather than playing into their block, we would keep the ball and wait for them to press. So we wouldn't play a pass until they jumped to press. Then we would play a pass. And then we would go quickly because if you don't go quickly, you give them a chance to recover behind the ball. So it was those kinds of things which rather than just accepting, oh, they're in a block and we can't break this down, we wouldn't try and progress over the halfway line until they had committed three or four players and then we would go. So it was that kind of stuff, really. It's very interesting when you see conversations about tactics in the media and on the internet. People talk about things with a degree of certainty which seems to ignore the fact that we can't see what's in a coach's head. We don't know exactly what their intentions are. Things may be more complicated or simple than what's being read into it. I want to talk briefly before we finish about the differences between club coaching and international coaching. For a start, some of the things you've said about coaching youth age groups internationally versus the senior team seem to be applicable to the difference between coaching internationally and coaching at a club. Much more immediate sense of pressure, for example. A consistency in terms of requiring results that maybe you don't see quite so much at international football, not just because stuff is spaced out a bit more. So how have you found the differences between working at clubs and working internationally? Yeah, I think there is pressure as well at international level because you're in or you're out. It's absolutely brutal, as we know, that opportunity to either qualify for a major tournament or get to a semi-final, 
penalty shootouts, all the other variables you have to deal with, travel and knitting together a new group or players from different clubs. There's all those factors that, you know, are a different challenge, I guess, to club coaching. In terms of club coaching, I think it depends on the context you're working in, the expectations, what culture you're going into. So I've worked in very different ones. You know, MK Dons and Arsenal couldn't be any more different in terms of financial resources, human resources, perception, expectation, etc. So I think as a coach, you just got to adapt to the different environments you're in and know what you're trying to achieve. And no two places are ever the same. I couldn't pick up what I did at MK Dons and take it into the FA. I couldn't pick up what I did at the FA and do at Arsenal because I'm in a different context. What I've got to do is bring my skill set, but also bring an adaptable mind and be ready to work in the context that I'm in. You can bring an adaptable mind, but football itself can seem remarkably resistant to adaptation. Do you think there's still a stigma about under 18 or under 21 coaches stepping up into head coach roles at first team level? Maybe there's less of a stigma when it's a well-known and experienced player who has none of the same level of coaching experience, but does have a greater degree of name recognition? I think yes and no. If I think about the generation of coaches that I've come through with, there are a number of them that have got opportunities in senior football because that's just the way it is. You know, it's normal because other people retire or they move into different roles or maybe they're not an attraction to certain club models. In terms of ex-players, I think certain ex-players, they go on different journeys. Take Russell Martin, for example, who did his qualifications while he was still a player. He got his first manager's job as he was still playing, so he actually retired at the same time. And it's been very fortunate for us as a game, I think, that he was given time to make mistakes and to, um, you know, lose games and maybe not even get into the top half of the table, but achieve other things beyond results, a unique playing style and player trading. So I think I've worked with ex-players who have incredible knowledge and incredible work ethic. I've worked with one or two as well who maybe don't. In terms of the stigma, I think abroad there's probably a closer alignment to youth football and first team football because they've got leagues some countries from under nines as we know so you'll have coaches in other development systems who they've always been in league tables and then when they get to say theirs is 17s 19s b team again it's national championships it's maybe a bit more televised bigger crowds so then when they jump into first team football like say thomas tuchel or Klopp, Germany has kind of prepared them for first team football in that transition. And then the league that they go into might be a bit more forgiving than ours, or you might be able to get some positive results. Whereas maybe in this country, less patience or the impact of social media on the decision of owners, that can maybe create that stigma, like you say. I think the influence of external factors is enormous, and trying to categorise the degree to which coaches can maintain, for example, good media relationships, good relationships with fans, uh, above and beyond purely results is a thing which maybe can be looked at in terms of coaching higher ability in the future. Before we finish, I want to ask you, we are obviously an analytics podcast, uh, and you're someone who has inhabited a number of different roles across professional football, all of which have had data requirements that may be different. What do you think are the future developments in terms of data and tech, in terms of helping coaches? What is maybe something that you would particularly like to have access to that currently isn't a thing? 
I'll say the first thing in terms of data that I think would be beneficial, I think it's the amount of information can be off-putting at times and also in the, you know, a, a skill in itself for a coach is with the time that you have available is being able to really go through the information. You'll always have staff who should do that for you, but sometimes not even the analysts have got the time because there can be so much information. I think information being bespoke to that club is a good thing. I think Arsenal were working towards it from the Wenger days, but it's then can you get that football language aligned to coaching? Even now that I've seen on the World Cup, different things coming up on the screen about receptions and things like that, and do people actually know what this means, This what, what this word means and why it's important. So I think football language is important and it being understood, consistent within a club. I like football language to be objective as much as possible. So it's a football action as opposed to something which could be a bit of a grey area. And I think from a technology point of view, I think it's future developments. I can see we're getting into a good place with match days things being readily available whether that can be transferred for training sessions I've seen like the big screens that they use I've seen used abroad where you can give instant information back to players do we put as much of our energy into training from a data perspective and technology perspective as we do onto the match day because if we don't it, it can create the feeling that it's all about the match but as we know if you get your monday to friday right then your saturday should take care of itself that's a really interesting point it almost feels like the kind of thing that would be part of how tactical periodization would conceive of data that it's all part of one cycle and embedded within the course of that process Anyway, thank you so much for that. There's so much to take away. For me, the point you just made about the use of language right at the end there, as someone who regularly takes part in conversations on Twitter with football coaches, journalists, data analysts, the idea of having one common language to describe footballing actions is so important uh, to disseminate these concepts. Anyway, thanks again for joining us, Dan. If people want to catch up with you, are you on LinkedIn, social media? Yes, I'm on LinkedIn. That's the best way to contact me. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to connect with people. Like I said, I'm always learning and always interested in new innovations as well. So that's been the Analytics FC podcast. Thanks very much again for joining us. If you've enjoyed the episode, please like, follow, subscribe, and we will be back next month with another podcast from Analytics FC. Bye-bye.